Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming, and I am excited because of this guest that I have today. Um, so, you know, the routine, I'm going to go ahead and introduce them, and then we're going to get right into the interview. Mark Casey is an American film writer, director, and producer. Mark is a native of Detroit, Michigan, and an alumnus of Redford High School. After a stint with the Detroit Police Department, Mark decided to pursue his dream of writing and directing. He attended Los Angeles Film School and later graduated from the University of Southern California. In 1999, Mark released Nikita Blues, his first film, receiving much fanfare and critical acclaim. He continues to build on this catalog of feature films under his production company, Foremost Entertainment, Inc. based in Los Angeles. And one of those films we're going to talk about is Flint Tale, which just recently was released. So ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Mark Casey. Hey, Mr. Casey, how you doing, brother? I'm blessed and highly favored. How you doing? I'm doing fine, <laughs> man. It's an honor to get a chance to talk to you. So look, I know, I know you. I know you're a busy man, so we're gonna get right into it. Um, All right. I've been kind of hyping this up about Flint Tail. So, okay. tell the listeners what Flint Tail is about. Okay. Well, first and foremost, Flint Tail, uh, as you know, had a Flint had a, a water issue, and uh, about five years ago. And uh, a lot of folks was getting sick, and it was a worldwide issue, as you know, right? When the tail end of Obama's administration, he actually went to Flint. Everybody went to Flint. Uh, Queen Latifah and T.I. and all the other major stars, even Cher, uh, went uh, to Flint. Uh, this That was an issue that was highlighted because uh, there's, uh, Flint has a large population of African Americans, uh, but it also has a lot of... Uh, uh, under the uh, under privileged uh, Caucasians or whites as well, uh, so it's not a black and white issue. It's uh, at least it wasn't for me because when I got to Flint, I realized that everybody's poor. I've never got issues there financially, uh, so it wasn't just black and white like they was advertising it. Uh, but it was a community that that was chosen, uh, and I said candidly by saying chosen by the powers that be to turn off their fresh water and give them some dirty water that was in the, in their Flint River. So that's that's what the movie is, uh, is an aftermath. It's not talking about when it happened. It's talking about how they're dealing with it in today's time, 2022. Uh, Queen Latifah did a movie called Flint where she dealt with it as it was about to happen. I just picked up what she left off and, and took the ball and ran with, okay, what's going on with it now? Is it fixed? Is it clean? And it's still going on, meaning that they still have issues and uh, they're still changing the pipes. But so, that's what Flint tells about. So you didn't do uh, it as a, you didn't do it as a documentary. You kind of made it a a story about a family. What what was the reasoning behind that? I, I appreciate that question because I get that a lot. Uh, because there's if you Google uh, Flint a water crisis, there's a lot of documentaries already made. <laughs> And I like to be uh, original. And even with Queen Latifah's movie, I was concerned because I didn't want to do what she did. Uh, she did a feature film. Uh, my feature is totally different. Uh, I actually hired uh, local Flint residents, uh, local Flint actors, 
Uh, I employ people in Flint, gave them money in Flint. Uh, so I brought production to Flint. Uh, the mayor at the time was Mayor Karen Weaver, and she was all over the news. She met with Obama, met with uh, uh, the governor at the time. Uh, she's actually in this film. She plays a small bit role uh, in the film. Uh, so this is a legitimate and powerful project. And I thought I can get more of the masses to be a part of it if I bring some celebrity faces and promote it uh, as a feature film and then sneak in my agenda. And that's why I didn't do it as a documentary because I knew the market was flooded with documentaries and I didn't want to uh, help flood the market, if you will. And and just as kind of a teaser, you center it around this family, uh, the Hawthorne family. <laughs> I mean, not the Hawthorne. Um, oh, please tell me the name of the family real quick. I know Hawthorne James plays the, the leader of the family, the, the father Mark figure. Will. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Chief Hartwell. Uh, Hartwell I centered right. around Chief Hartwell, which is James Hartthorne, which is Hartthorne James from The Five Heartbeats in the movie Speed, and uh, quite a few movies that I, I'm not going to go through his list, but he is uh, for real Hollywood. So he brought uh, a high caliber of, uh, of uh, what we wanted as far as acting and notoriety. And then we had his uh, young wife, because she's a, uh, he was a wealthy uh, chief of, uh, well, I say wealthy, I say well-off uh, chief of police uh, who had a young wife. <laughs> yeah. She was, you know, and she is played by uh, Erica Peoples, who uh, did uh, the series uh, for the uh, True to the Game series with uh, Columbus Short. Uh, so uh, her name is Erica Peoples. You know her face when you see her. Uh, she plays his uh, wife. Um, let's see, who else did I bring in? Oh, those, those are the two. Yeah, those are the two main yeah. people because you have because a lot of the yeah. people that work with you in the film also work with you in the company, from what I understand, which I think is pretty cool because you you highlighted the fact that you had a lot of female producers for this movie. Well, yeah, there, there's only there's only one female producer in there that's actually in the film, and she got uh, promoted to a producer and got paid well for that. <laughs> Yeah, yes, yeah. Sir. she got paid more than she was as an actress. But without her, her name is Takoya uh, Harris. And without her, uh, I don't think I could have finished the project. Uh, she was, she, uh, uh, that term they say, uh, boots on the ground. She was the boots on the ground. Yeah, and, and, and her and voice, she, her, and, yeah, go ahead. I, I was going to say her voice narrates the film to a degree. And, and her voice narrates the film. So she wound, wound up picking up a producer credit. And it's funny, in Hawthorne, like I said, Hawthorne's been in multi-million dollar films and turned down quite a few uh, uh, films as well uh, in Hollywood. And he's he's been trying to get her to come on board to produce uh, one of he, he's a writer as well. Some of his projects, he was so impressed with Takoya. But I do have uh, four black females, uh, Marie LaMille, uh, 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 Shakola Thompson, uh, uh, Carolyn uh, Copeland. Uh, she got divorced, so it's Copeland, I'm sorry. Um, if she go back, Copeland or Murphy. But her name was Murphy when I was working with Copeland. Uh, uh, and, and those are the people that produced his film, those four women. And it, to me, that was something that's powerful to have four black females represent this this, this project because you don't get to see that at all in most films, you know. Uh, so that was important to me to have those uh, four women. Yes, sir. So uh, Cheryl Rich is her last name. I don't know. 
where my mind is. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I'm in pre-production as we speak with another project. So yes, sir. Anyway, I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> so what do you want? Um, well, tell me, what is the, you kind of touched on a little bit, but kind of honed down in what is the importance of this film? What do you, what do you want audiences to take away from it? What's important in this film to me, I mean, what I want is awareness. Do not forget the little town of Flint that could. That's what I want. I don't want, to want to, no one to forget that Flint is still there. They're surviving. They call themselves the Flintstones, and they're dealing with the water crisis. A lot of people have moved away to uh, either down south or to some other uh, local Michigan areas, uh, but a lot of people stayed. They're still there. And so my whole objective was to not let folk uh, forget where Flint is, which is in Michigan, and who they are. Strong, Flint, Stone, strong. And that's what I promote in this film, because uh, a lot of the lead was uh, it poisoned some of their little kindergartens, uh, kids who has to deal with that today with disabilities, or autism. Uh, it, a lot of folks' dad, uh, Jasmine McBride, uh, I dedicated the movie to. She passed away from Legionnaire's disease, and her mom told her stop drinking that water, and she kept drinking it because she didn't believe it was anything wrong with it. Her name was Jasmine McBride. She's from Flint, Michigan, and she passed away while we were filming, by the way. So uh, I dedicated the movie to her because she was one of the, the victims. Uh, I've got people from General Motors, uh, retirees call me and saying, hey, you know, this stuff is still happening. You know, you know it's a lot of us are still dealing with it. They just had a big settlement and they haven't uh, dispersed the, the funds yet, but the money is supposed to be uh, uh, dispersed because they want a lawsuit uh, for a large amount of money. I'm not sure how many millions it is, but it, does, it doesn't trickle down to the residents because the lawyers got a big chunk of it. So I think each person maybe get 10000 or some crazy small amount like that. Uh, and, and, and I could be wrong. It might be a little bit more, it might be a little bit less. But it, there's, there's, a, there's a, and, and, and also uh, Benton Harbor, Michigan is going through it right now. But as you can hear right. and see, you don't know much about it. But it's the same thing going on in Benton Harbor, which is another small little African community, African American. American community that's on the opposite side of the state of from Flint. It went, it had, and Detroit is like in the middle of these two cities, which is strange because Detroit has the clean water and it was actually filtering their water out to these those other communities. That's how they normally did it. But these communities said, oh no, we have a, we want to do our own water uh, treatment and wind up poisoning, getting poisoned. But it wasn't the cities, it was the politics of the state. Right. I, I, I got that. And that's the and that's the connection because Benton Harbor and Flint were cities that the governor at the time exercised got the legislature to pass this law for these managers to take over these cities. And these were cities. Uh, look at you. Look at you. You've been doing some research. Just a little man. bit. Just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yes, so it's you called the emergency managers. And an emergency manager, what that actually means is that the mayor has no control or the city council, or any political person that was voted in by the people, I'll say it again, by the people, have no power and control to run their own city. Is one man or one female that one man or one female appoints. So if I appoint you, Eric, to run that city, you can do whatever you want to do without any uh, uh, setbacks or arguments from the mayor 
or the city council or any type of county supervisor or city manager. They have no power over you. Are the, you are the most powerful person in that city if the governor appoints you. And that was a bad law that they voted in. The Assembly of Michigan voted that in up in Lansing to give a governor that much power uh, to do that, to give one person to run a community that they don't even live in. Right. They have no interest in other than getting a check and doing whatever said governor tells them to do. That's right. <laughs> and maybe a little extra checks on the side, but we won't get into that too much. Oh, no, we won't. <laughs> but now I kind of asked you about what do you want the audience to take away outside of awareness? What do you want people that see the movie other than to be entertained by the, by the quality of the acting? What do you want people as an action to do? Well, once again, like I said, not to forget that Flynn is still there and they still need help. They still need awareness and to be, and be concerned and careful about, uh, what they allow their politicians to 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 do in their cities, in their communities. Uh, that's what my, like I said, but my awareness is not that. No, excuse me. Forget. Do not forget. You know. Don't. Do not forget. It's almost like dealing with the Tulsa riots in 1920s down in Oklahoma. We can't do anything about it now, but we. I want the. the, the it, it to be uh, documented what happened because we. I, we didn't know anything about that until well, at least I did, and most. America's black and white until like maybe five years ago. Right. And all of a sudden, five years ago, everybody's talking about it. That's um, right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Somebody kicked in here. Uh, okay. That, that's okay. Um, yeah, I'm back. So, having said that, do you think black cinema as a whole has an obligation to tell these type of stories? Absolutely. My, my, you know, I've had an epiphany just recently uh, as a young man. I can't think of his name, but he's all over the news. He's a, a, a descendant of Africa and he plays soccer. And I don't know what country he plays for uh, or he represents, but he has a cracked cell phone. And this man makes uh, maybe 50 to 100 million dollars. He has a big contract and he's walking around with a cracked cell phone. And he said, uh, I don't care nothing about uh, uh, I can buy five Learjets, a uh, hundred Bentleys, and a Bugatti. I don't care. I, uh, th- th- this phone is not important to me. Uh, what's important to me is helping poor people, my people in my country, in my village. And for some reason, I'm having this same thing. I saw a rapper today on TikTok uh, at the ice jewelry store with a bag of money. He had a Louis Vuitton bag full of cash. And where are we going with this? You know, I mean, come on. So I have a, a bag full of cash. Uh, I believe we as Black Americans are family. You are my family, Eric. We're family. We connected somehow. And some way we got to get back spiritually and connect ourselves back. Because if I got a bag of money, guess what? You shouldn't be broke and homeless and, and not having any money, you know, uh, uh, no matter what the situation is. I think we need to start uh, thinking like um, not... Not, I should, I'm not going to name the cultures, but there's some cultures that will not do what we're doing, uh, and that is just dealing with self. It's all about me, 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 me. And, and, and I'm starting to get away from that me, me, me theory, and want to help my people because we need help, and that's important to me. So 
I think I'm going to use this platform from this point on to, to try to support my people and find a way where I can uplift them. And I don't have to ride around in a Bugatti and a Rolls Royce and act like all these other fools. I call them fools. Now, I didn't name them, so hey, they can't get mad at me. But at, at the end of the day, you can't take none of that stuff with you. <laughs> you right. And, and, and by watching that young man say, you know, uh, this crack phone don't mean nothing to me. Feeding that little boy with the runny nose is homely is important to me. No matter what color he is, walk around with a cell phone uh, that costs fifteen hundred bucks. That's what the iPhones cost nowadays. By the way, if you didn't know, yes, sir, fifteen hundred. I do know. And <laughs> and so this man has more money than most people in the United States, and he's he will not buy a new phone because he feels guilty. He'd rather give that money away to somebody that needs it. How can you ride around? And call yourself a rich rapper, R&B singer. Well, we don't have R&B singers, rich people anymore. But a rapper or athlete, and, and be self-indulged, so self-indulged. Why are we? Why are we so self-indulged in our own self-wealth? Where did this come from? What, what What happened to the tribe? What happened to the family? And I'm trying to get back to that. I'm well, trying to get back to that. Well, I I've had the privilege of watching Flint Tail, and I think you know, for this particular issue that you're trying to highlight in that movie, I think you've shown a path of how to, how to make that happen. So tell me a little bit about what you're working on now. Um, I have an, uh, a film that I'm working on uh, presently. Um, uh, it's, um, it's a dance movie. Uh, it's the last movie that Debo was in, a tiny list of Debo from Friday. Okay. He actually passed away when he left my set, God, man. Uh, it's called Last Chance to Dance, uh, aka in in the uh, in the uh, MIA, which is Miami. Um, we're finishing that project. Uh, it has Ella Joyce in it, uh, Bayleen from the Wild Wild West. She played opposite Will Smith, the Asian lady. Uh, and we have a guy named Tanz Green that's on Step Up on Stars, uh, which is a, a dance uh, a series that come on Stars. So um, I'm finishing up that project this weekend uh, in Miami. So that's why I'm so busy. And forgive me that I couldn't. I kept missing times. So. That's okay. That's all right. We good. Yeah. We got. We got it in. And and for those Ella Joyce, if y'all remember, that was Rock's wife on the TV show Rock. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Yeah. And 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 she played and set it off. That's right. She was the cop and set it off. off. Yeah. And Vivica Fox, she was a beast in that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So. I, look, and she's a, I think she plays somebody's mom in the game or something uh, on BET. So, right. yeah, she gets, she gets a lot of work. Yeah, well, that's good. It, it, it's, it's good for me to see brothers that are that are trying to, to, to do something. You've been doing this for a long time, uh, <laughs> you know, and it's like, yeah. you know, I've got some family in, you know, in the business and all that stuff, and I just know how hard a grind it is. So to see a brother like you at this particular point, uh, hope that you get hired and hope that uh, more projects that you do like Flint Tail come out so that more stories are told. Um, so I, at this point, I know you got to get ready to get out of town. So I'm going to let you go. But but uh, Mr. Thank Casey, you. I appreciate you taking the time out, brother. And uh, it was worth the wait. Thank you, man. God bless you. All right. All right, guys, we're going we're gonna to catch this on the other side. All right.
All right, and we're back. Uh, so you just heard that interview with uh, Mark Casey. Uh, like he said, he's got some other projects that uh, are coming down the pike. If you are interested in a little bit more about uh, his production company, is called Foremost, F-O-R-E-M-O-S-T, Entertainment Company, um, and uh, Black-owned operated film film company and um you can go to foremostentertainment.com uh to look at all the movies uh that that he's been able to do uh all the way from Nikita Blues all the way up to Flint Tail and you'll get to learn a little bit about the folks that are behind the scenes uh putting this thing together um I, I really wanted to get him because he is uh He's, he's a guy who is working toward a dream. He was, as you heard in the introduction, he didn't start off being a film guy, but now that he's in it, um, he's trying to do something to uh, edify the culture more than just from an entertainment standpoint. So, um, and I saw the movie on Prime Video, so... You can catch any of his movies on that or uh, a lot of the other what we call VOD or streaming services. Um, uh, you'll be able to uh, find Flint Tail on that. And, and I encourage y'all to, to support him uh, by checking the film out. Um, so now that we've done that, um, I kind of want to touch on a few things that have happened um, you know, that pertain to a lot of the stuff that we deal with on the show. Uh, there have been some people that have gotten upset about, uh, the end of, or what seems to be the end of, of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, um, due to, two senators, Manchin and Cinema, um, not supporting uh, changing the filibuster rule so that there could at least be a debate about the bill and then a vote on it in which Vice President Harris probably would have had to break, have broken the tie. Um, I mean, we've talked about these people on the show before. It is what it is. Um, I don't know. I've noticed that some of my uh, contemporaries or people that are influential in Democratic Party are talking about, especially those folks in Arizona are talking about like they're not going to donate to her campaign and trying to find a candidate. She's not on the ballot until 2024. Now, that's only two years away. Um, in political terms. And this is about the time that you really start, especially when you're running for the U.S. Senate. If you're serious about it, you start looking at that. But um, yeah, you know, I don't know. Um, I think it has more of an impact. What's happening to Backlash with her is having more of an impact on Mark Kelly, who's on the ballot this year. Um, Senator Kelly is the husband of former Congresswoman Gabby Gaffords, as you know, who was wounded in a shooting incident in her district. 
um, and she survived. And uh, and so her husband, who was former NASA astronaut, uh, got elected in the special election to uh, finish out a term. And I can't remember, was it McCain's or uh, I want to say it was Flake's term. But, you know, uh, and he had been kind of talking the same as cinema, but when it came down to the vote, he voted to break the filibuster. Uh, so I think in a sense, you've got one Democratic senator that if he can get reelected, and that's going to be the key to see what happens in November, because if he wins, then the Democratic base is right in Arizona and Cinema is wrong to take the position. If Kelly loses, then Cinema can go around and say, I was protecting my seat. Uh, you know, so we'll see. Um, you know, she kept taking this interesting position. I support the bill, but I don't, I'm not down with changing the rule to make it happen. And I just remember, and I'm not going to name names, but I, I just remember there was an incident and it was a small deal, right? Where back in Jackson, we were trying to rename a library and the community, which is majority African-American wanted, uh, wanted named after a certain person. And then there were some people in the white community that wanted it named somewhere else, but Jackson's majority black city and the area where the library is, is predominantly black, even though the way the city is divided by the interstate, there were people that would come over from the East side to that library uh, and the East side at that time was still majority white. And uh, it was ready for a vote. And then one of the council members who was really, really close to the guy who uh, they wanted to name it after said, well, yeah, but we didn't follow all the rules for that. Um, and uh, ended up kind of blocking it. And it took some folks to tell them the council kind of has a latitude, not exactly to follow the rules per se, to do something good or beneficial to the community or something that would uplift the community. Uh, you know, and, you know, his argument was, well, you know, if something comes up and they try to railroad something, they're going to point to that. And one council member said, yeah, but they don't have the votes to do that. <laughs> so I wouldn't worry about that. I wouldn't even worry about it 20 years down the road, you know. Um, and I just throw that out there because, of course, the library ended up being named after the person the community wanted. But. It's just an example that sometimes we get hung up on procedural things or little things 
and not look at what the big picture is, right? And the big picture in America is that voting rights are being challenged. And I was it was refreshing to see two of the black senators, uh, Senator Scott from South Carolina and Senator Booker from New Jersey, actively debating the issue and speaking from their party perspectives. Um, me, of course, because I just like to see us in positions making decisions that affect national policy. But um, these two gentlemen were coming at it, not personal attacks, but trying to state their case based on their their facts. Uh, Senator Scott was talking about we didn't really need it. And in hindsight, Mitch McConnell probably should have had him or deferred to him when he made his classic statement. And I'll get on that in a minute. And then, you know, trying to say that this is not Jim Crow 2.0, whereas Cory Booker says it's probably worse, right? Um, because of the technology and everything else, um, you know, when it's not as overt, it's probably when it's more dangerous, right? So that was that was refreshing to 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 see um, them going at it. Um, and of course, I take the side that we need as much protection to on the vote as we can, because it is obvious that people have made a calculated decision that they would rather limit who can vote or limit accessibility to voting primarily um, instead of working on policies to uh, get black people to vote for them, right? And there are some people running as Republicans who don't agree with that and believe that black votes can be captured on, on the Republican side um, if you talk about the right issues. Um, there's a young brother, um, and I can't quite get his name right in my mind now. Uh, uh, and I'm going to try to reach out to him to see if I can get him on the show. But based on what I've seen of him talking, uh, he's a conservative. There's no doubt about that. But uh, he understands that whether he's a conservative or a liberal, his interest is the black community. And he feels that he can have a conservative message. And that's really all that people ask is that you respect us as voters and not take it for granted whether we vote for your party or not on a regular basis, that you address issues that we're concerned about. And that's part of the why we have some unrest. That's part of the reason why Democrats lost gains that they had gained in 2020 in Virginia. And, uh, you know, and, and now it's, well, I wouldn't even say 2020, I guess 2019 for them. 
um, and then turned around and 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 lost it um, last November. And so, and that gets me to the Mitch McConnell quote. And so he tried to clean it up, but basically what he said in essence was that there are Americans and then there are African-Americans, right? And they're spinning it as an inadvertent admission that he just forgot to put the word all in there uh, when he was speaking. And, you know, one word, I mean, one comma makes a difference in a legal document, right? So that's the argument he's trying to make. But I think it's more of a Freudian slip, right? And for those who are not familiar with the term, Freudian slip basically means you said what you really thought out loud, right? And again, people say, well, Fleming, that, that's really not fair. And I say, yeah, it is. Because all of us who have ever served in office, especially when we are speaking in public, we have to be accountable for everything that we say. And most of us have to go on what we believe, right? In order to push for the things that um, uh, we're trying to, you know, get done for our communities. Um, and so I don't think it was an inadvertent omission. I think he really meant that. And I think there's a lot of people like him that think like that because action speaks louder than words. You know, I just never, I, I just never really quite understood. I mean, I, I get power. And I get power grabs and I get trying to hang on to that last vestige. But I don't I don't understand in in America why we're in a situation where we just have to, and especially those folks in, in the white community, why they have to be so afraid of what's happening. And and why they're so guilty about it, right? So, you know, there's a lot of things that really, really need to take place. And it's going to be a generational thing to change. And you see it happening gradually, but it's it's going to take some time to get through all of the programming that people have had. Which leads me to my last point. Um, my colleagues, former colleagues in Mississippi did something this week, uh, which kind of made me, lack of a better term, homesick, right? So in Mississippi, they've, they've got a bill going through the, the state legislature to, and the wording of the bill says, that it wants to eliminate from any school, public school, any college or university, uh, any curriculum that will teach that one race is 
superior or inferior to another. They want to ban that. But they threw in critical race theory in the title. And I guess, you know, to to get the base energized to support it, they threw that in there. But the wording of the bill doesn't even talk about critical race theory and say, now unless you're trying to say that teaching people how white supremacy and racism has permeated all of our institutions uh, is a bad thing, right? If you're trying to imply that teaching that basically says that black people are superior to white people, I think that's that's a faulty argument on its premise, but um, if you're going to do that, then you need to be specific. If you're going to single out critical race theory, then you need to single out white nationalism and you need to single out anti-Semitism, right? You need to single out uh, xenophobia, right? Um, you know, any anything that has been used politically to gain support, um, you know, if you think that critical race theory helps Democrats, then surely you must understand that white nationalism and xenophobia has helped Republicans, right? And so you need to put that in the title of the bill as well. And I hope that some members of the House, they hear this, put that amendment in there, right? Because if the spirit of the bill is to take away any kind of curriculum, any kind of ideology, in the public school system and in the state colleges and universities, junior colleges as well, that you don't want to teach anything that promotes superiority over another race or the inferiority of a race, then you have to include all of those. You can't just single out critical race theory, which by the way, does not teach superiority or inferiority. It just states facts, right? Because if, if you don't believe that white supremacy and racism has not had an institutional impact in this country, I suggest you watch shows like Women in the Movement and 12 Years a Slave and Roots and... Well, anyway, we got, we got a guest that's going to break it down a lot better than I can coming up soon. Um, but you, you've, you've got to understand as mature adults that that's the reality of it. But just because it currently exists or it has existed for a long period of time doesn't mean that it can't be fixed. It's not going to be fixed overnight because we can't get to every household every night. Right. But you can start. And so my colleagues walked out on that vote. The Senate members of the Black Caucus, they walked out. The only people that voted against the bill were the two white Democrats. They stayed and they voted no. So now it's going to go over to the House. And I assume that 
the House caucus members will do the same thing. But I really hope that somebody offers that amendment so you can have that frank discussion on the record because in Mississippi, they record, and I don't know what they do in other states, but in Mississippi, the Mississippi College of School of Law records the legislative sessions. And so it would be great to have that debate recorded. And it'd be great to hear the responses and even the questions on the amendment um, that deal with, you know, this subject for posterity. And hopefully 50 years from now, when people look at that in a better Mississippi and a better America as a whole, they'll appreciate how far we've come, right? Because if we continue to placate people who believe in white dominance, whether it's subtle or whether it's in your face, America is going to continue to have problems. We've always had growing pains, but now we're getting to a point where we're about to be really, really stagnated. And it's been coming. Right. And a lot of the problem is dealing with economics. Anytime America's had economic issues, racial issues tend to come up because there's this mindset that equates that if you're a person of color, you're messing up the balance of the economy. And in whatever reason, whether the perception is that we get governmental assistance or the fact that we're just showing up, especially people of color from Latin America countries uh, or African countries, um, that we're just screwing the economy up to the point where it's more expensive to live, right? And even if you look at indexes, right? Atlanta has some of the highest inflation in the nation. And the index says it's because everybody is moving to Atlanta. So everything's going up because there's a demand for housing and there's a demand for cars and there's a demand for food. So those kind of indexes try to justify those racist arguments, right? But the reality is that the sooner America breaks away from its racist past and present, then you can have truly a better future. And that's not really theory. That's just common sense. And I wish I could find, I wish I could find a news story that showed this town in Texas. It wasn't that far as a little bitty town, not too far away from Austin. Because Austin at that time the, the tech industry was growing there. So a lot of these people worked in Austin, but they lived in this little small community, bedroom community. And every year the town would have a picnic, right? And when you looked at the people at this picnic, they were people, they were people, you know, all from all different races and ethnicities, right? It was literally like the United Nations were having lunch in this little small town. And that's because all these people came in for these high tech jobs. So all these people were making money. The average median income was like $86,000 at that time. 
was probably higher than that now. And there was no crime, uh, no incidents of racism whatsoever. Uh, you know, they were talking about it was one person of color was the homecoming queen and one person of color was the captain of the football team. And I think they actually went to the state playoffs. I can't remember. But, I mean, it was almost utopian. Almost. Right? Because human beings are human beings. But as far as most of the social economic indicators that most cities have to go through, um, they weren't experiencing the negative ones. They were thriving in this community. And I tend to believe that because people were making money, there was no strife, right? And and these people were well-educated because they were working these kind of high-tech jobs and they were more culturally aware. So they were able to embrace other cultures in their community and make it one solid community. And that's what America should be. That's what is really, whether the founding fathers really truly envisioned that, that's really how the document is laid out, right? Both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and especially since the Constitution has been amended several times. So I think that, you know, we just celebrated Dr. King's 93rd birthday. I just think that we've got to get to a point where we're truly making a concerted effort. And it doesn't matter which party leads it. It doesn't matter if a third party emerges to lead it. We just need somebody to step forward and start pushing us in that direction. And if we do that, and we do it without fear of being displaced or fear of being irrelevant, then I think we can move forward. But there's there's a lot of scars that have to be healed. There's a lot of bad things that have to, you know, breaks in the system that have to be repaired. And I think talking about our history helps us heal. The us admitting that there is a problem helps us heal. Trying to whitewash it, trying to cover it up, you know, one of the most popular memes going around is this black artist has created this portrait where it showed you see Martin Luther King and Harriet Tubman and, and Malcolm X. And then you see this white hand with white paint painting over them. And that's become real popular based on all of these fears about critical race theory. Right. So we need to get away from that. And I don't know what it will take. I'm not that smart, but I do know that understanding where the problem is helps you diagnose how to fix it. And acknowledging that have you that that you have a problem, you know, is the core to reaching a solution. So um, I just pray that we get to that point where we stop using histrionics as politics and just man up and deal with the fact that America was not perfect. America made a lot of mistakes. 
but we can be better. It's not just about building bridges and all that stuff. It's about building people. Building people to be better than what they are. Being better than the lowest common denominator, which is comfortable. We've got to get out of that syndrome. And the best way to get out of that syndrome is stop trying to whitewash history and stop trying to embrace your fear, right? Um, Or basically... I shouldn't say embrace the fear. I should say, let the fear control you, right? So anyway, those are my takes and uh, hope you enjoy the show. Hope you enjoy the interview. And uh, until next time.